Let's jump in. If you got your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. Luke chapter 1, start in verse 1. And some of you are like, finally Christmas messages. Yes, we made it, all right? Finally some Christmas stuff for you. Uh, We got Joseph out of Potiphar's house and into jail, which was an upgrade. Uh, And so now uh, we're jumping in and we'll start our study, okay? Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. It starts with this question today. Have you ever seen someone from your childhood living as a respectable adult, all right? Okay, have you ever seen someone from your childhood living as a respectable adult. I don't know about you. Now, just for the record, this is not where like you think of the biggest screw up you can think of. I just mean, I, I don't know about you. I come across people I grew up with sometimes or even on Facebook and you're like, they turned out all right. You know what I mean? I can't believe this person we used to cause trouble together, that we used to just, you know, just do these different things together. All of a sudden, play football together, whatever. All of a sudden, man, they really, they really ended up uh, building a respectable life. This is somebody who, uh, who really figured out who they were. The person that they were younger uh, was still who they are, but the the Lord had other plans for them, and watching them transform is just a pretty special stretch. You being the one who knew them from the time they were younger, and people around you that knew you from the time you're younger are very important for you because they help complete the circle, they help complete the story of how you became who you were supposed to be. This was so funny. So, this last uh, a few weeks ago, I got to go and preach in Carlsbad, New Mexico. And the youth minister that I was preaching for, his wife was in the youth group with me when we were growing up. And she now is a wonderful disciple maker and just an awesome teacher and awesome leader. But when we started in the youth group together, she was the head of the mime ministry. Our church had a mime ministry. Some of you are like, that sounds frightening. It was. It was, all right? There was this mime ministry where they would, again, trapped in all that stuff. Anyway, so it was just so funny because I'm watching her teach and lead, and I'm just sitting there with a smirk on my face. And she comes up to me afterwards, and she was like, you're picturing me as the mime, aren't you? I'm like, I am. I'm so sorry, but I am. I just can't believe all that the Lord's done in you. Sometimes you have those special moments. There was a man that we met in Texas when we were serving at a church. And this guy uh, had been a geologist, but, um, I mean, again, really scraping by, trying to, uh, trying to make money, but had an idea that there was a pocket there in their part of Texas that had some oil that nobody had ever tapped into. And so this guy had the idea, again, he's a geologist, had the idea, if I can scrape the money, together and buy one well, then maybe we can end up just, you know, maybe this will be something special. So sure enough, that well and the way that he had had this plan to get to the oil pocket succeeds. And he went from, again, having no money whatsoever and having to, having to survive on assistance to he made $50 million, I mean, in a period of a couple of years. It was crazy. One oil well turned into an entire company. And so we're at a church barbecue one day, and the word is spread around that this guy's going to show up. Well, I'm telling you, because the town wasn't big, all of a sudden, everybody's like, he's coming to the event, he's coming to the event. And then it was like everybody with their business plan showed up wanting to pitch some idea to try to get some of the money. The church is not for that people, all right? Anyway, just saying. It's not, not, for, not the place for you to pitch your business plan. But you're watching this happen. Well, anyway, in that circumstance, I'll never forget this. I, my degree is sociology, so I like people watching. I'm watching this thing unfold, and I'm seeing this guy he's standing like this and kind of nodding, taking in stuff. And then off the side is one of our other Sunday school teachers who just was a really good, funny guy. Okay, he just was a really good guy, hard worker, great teacher, but again, not $50 million, right? So he's standing over there, and you watch him with his arms crossed, and he's got a smirk on his face. They'd gone to high school together. And all of a sudden, he makes eye contact with this $50 million guy, and when they make eye contact, he goes, 
I remember you when you were the backup shortstop. You were my backup shortstop on our team. And you watch it. Everybody's looking to see how the millionaire's going to respond. And you watch him. Like Goofy from Disney, he just, <laughs> I mean, he starts just laughing. And the walls came down. It was this beautiful moment of transparency where this guy reminded him, this is where you've come from. And what he did was acknowledge, man, it wasn't him saying, I'm taking you down a peg. It was truly him saying, I see you. I see where you started and I also see who you've become. And I'm very, very proud of that. When we study Christmas, Christmas is a beautiful opportunity for us to look back on Jesus changing the world, but God had to start it somewhere. He had to start this story from a, from a point. And what we find here in Luke is Luke is about to show us where the story all begins. It's that smile and wink moment of going, man, I remember before he was the savior of the world when he was just the baby in the manger. I can remember God starting the rescue mission just as vividly as I can remember him finishing it. Look at what happens in Luke chapter one, starting in verse one. It says here, Luke writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Look at this. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. Underline orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. Underline most excellent Theophilus. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now stop right there for just a minute. There's two big versions of the Christmas story. The first is Matthew's version. Matthew's version is eight verses long. It's not an extensive edition. It's a chance for us just to have a flyby of just how powerful that night when Christ was born was. Luke is a little bit different. Luke was a doctor by trade. And what we find in this passage is Luke says, let me tell you the long version of the story of how this thing started. Luke's version of, the, or Luke's version of Christ being born is more than 100 verses where he lays out very methodically in an orderly fashion how all of this came about, how it all took place. And I love he says, I'm writing this for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now here's what's interesting about Theophilus. Theos means God. Philus is friendship love. So he has written this to the loving friends of God. Isn't that cool? To the most excellent loving friends of God. Now here's what makes this even cooler. The title most excellent means that Luke wasn't writing it in a general fashion. Most excellent is a title that was reserved for politicians, for magistrates, for judges, and for, this is interesting, for lawyers. Some of you lawyers in this room, this was written uh, most likely to a lawyer who was trying to reconcile what he had experienced, he or she had experienced with faith. Now we got this beautiful, beautiful picture here. I write to you, most excellent Theophilus. So it has been written to the loving friend of God, right? We can place ourselves into this category, but there is someone very specific that Luke is trying to explain the truths of the faith to them. Just for the record, Jesus Jesus' appearing changed the world. The message was spreading. People are literally willing to die uh, for this faith that they have. And the people around are looking, going, how could this possibly have happened? And you got to remember this. Luke is writing to a world where there were still people around 
at Jesus's, uh, at the moment in Jerusalem when Jesus came in and they cried, Hosanna. He's writing to a world that's not multiple generations removed. They had experienced this firsthand. Eyewitnesses had been around. If you're taking notes, write this down. Luke is providing real witnesses, many of whom are still living while he's writing, to paint a picture of a very real Jesus. Let me say that again. Luke is providing real witnesses, many of whom are still living while he's writing, to paint a picture of a very real Jesus. When Luke writes this, the hope is that the reader is able to catch and go, whoa, I met someone who was a part of that revival. I met someone who was a part of that detail of the Roman soldiers. I met someone who was a part of that priestly group, and I know that the story is true. He's laying out so many witnesses. It's so power as he defends the existence of Jesus. So, with it written to a lawyer, or written in a legal fashion, our big million-dollar question is this. Who has Luke called as his first witness? He's just laid this out. He's about to tell the story of Christ's birth. He's about to tell about the start of the rescue mission. And then all of a sudden, he jumps in and tells us about a man named Zechariah. Who has Luke called as his first witness? Look at what it says here in verse 5, and we're going to look at the character of Zechariah today. Luke starts the rescue mission by telling this story. Verse 5. It says, in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, underlined a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Underline that word blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Underline they were both well along in years. So here's what's interesting. Luke is about to tell the story of Jesus and he says it all starts with Zechariah. Zechariah is a part of the family that are cousins of Jesus. They will be cousins of Jesus. So we've got this situation where John where Luke says it starts with Zechariah and then he begins to lay out this man's character that he comes from a really famous family. Abijah and Aaron, you don't get a much better lineage than that lineage. He says this is a guy who is someone who is very, very, who is a, who is a, his family is known for making good decisions, for being godly and righteous. He says not only that, but they tried to be, as far as regulations go, blameless. Blameless did not mean without sin. One commentator writes that blameless here meant faithful and sincere with their life, that they tried their very best to live for God, not just in word, but to live for him in action. And then we find this out, they're well along in years. This is not something they had done for a short amount of time, but with consistency throughout their life. Who has Luke called as his first witness? Number one, are you ready? Someone sincere and reliable. Write that down. Someone sincere and reliable. When it comes to the message of Jesus, this is so powerful. When godly character is attached to the godly message, it is, it is electric in the way that the Lord is able to use that message. If you're taking notes, write this down. The gospel is much harder to deny when those sharing it have genuine character. Let me say that again. The gospel is much harder to deny when those sharing it have genuine character. And the first witness, the first person that Luke names in this story to defend the cause of Jesus, to defend his message, to defend his story, he calls the witness of Zechariah, someone sincere and deeply reliable. I love getting to go through this today because there were so many people that came to mind. I tried to think of people in my life that have served as spiritual mile markers. Have you ever had someone in your life 
that you started to drift away and kind of like a kind of like going bowling. You've been bowling before. You ever gone bowling? And what do they do for the first time bowlers? They bring up those bumpers on the side, right? They were bowled and needed the bumpers before. The bumpers come up on the side and it makes it to where if you start to head towards the gutter, dink, it just pushes you back to the middle so that at least maybe you can hit two or three pins, right? So that you can at least uh, get on the board. There are people in your life that serve as those bumpers, that serve as those mile markers. And very rarely is it a preacher from the pulpit. Most of the time, it's a godly leader. It's a parent. It's a grandparent. It's someone, it's a neighbor. It's someone in your life that lived with such consistency. They were not necessarily the loudest voice for God, but they were always reliable, always consistent, the same guy or the same woman every single day. I had a stretch in my life where I could have gone either way. My dad um, went from pastoring a church like I do here to he went into full-time evangelism where he traveled to preach and to share the gospel in all sorts of different places. And his claim to fame was he was a chaplain with a bunch of different sports teams, which was way cool. Um, But he was gone a lot. In fact, the revival season, the way it hit, dad would basically leave in August and then we would see him at Thanksgiving. He was gone almost that entire stretch. And I truly believe he did what the Lord had called him to do, but he was gone. And it wasn't like he was off just working. He was off spending time with other people's families. He was off spending time with other people's kids. And that always kind of hit me just a little bit. And I'll never forget, I knew that the Lord had called him to do what he was doing, but I just felt so empty sometimes, like I needed someone to walk alongside me. And God provided two men, a man named John Earl and a man named Wes Palmer. When you fill out your forms to go to seminary, you have to fill out witnesses in your life uh, that showed you Christ outside of the church. That's one of the, one of the keys that for the seminary that I went to. They wanted to know that you were able to not just connect with godly leaders, but also with lay people as well. And I'll never forget, I listed these two men, my ninth grade Sunday school teachers, as the, guy that liked the, the guys that liked the bumpers, nudged me back towards the Lord. You could not have had two different Sunday school teachers, okay? Wes Palmer was an optometrist who wore sweater vests to church every Sunday. Sweater vests are awesome, but he looked like a TV version of an optometrist. He's probably watching the live feed. Again, he was the most moral, kind. I mean, just he was, he was the, he again was the was the father everybody always wanted because he was so kind. He was, he was just such a straight arrow. And then you had John Earl. John Earl was a computer programmer in the early 90s. Some of you remember back in those days. In the early 90s, a computer programmer, but he had lived as a hippie before that. And so I mean he had some crazy stories and a beard down to here before beards were cool, you know, had the beard down to here. And so what you had was Mr. Palmer telling us the way to live the right way. And then you had John Earl on the other side going, he's right, and I've walked every path. I mean, it was one of those, right? It was magic because the two men had great respect for each other. Their families had great respect for each other. And you watched it. There were days where I just needed to know what the right thing was. And I'd start to drift. And Mr. Palmer would come along on Sunday, check up on me, and he'd go, young man, you know that's wrong. You know this is a bad idea. And you need to follow Christ. And then I'd go over to Mr. Earl, and he'd be like, I've done it twice. Don't do it, young man. Don't do it. It's a terrible idea. I can show you the scars. I mean, it was one of those, right? Now listen, I thank God for them. When it comes to the way I grew spiritually, becoming the man that I am today, those two men were placed by God. They weren't the ones who would be up on stage doing the preaching. They were just consistent, reliable, godly, and in my evaluation, absolute heroes of the faith. God provided a young woman in my life as well. Her name's Amberly Goodman. 
Amberly and I went to college together. And uh, back in the day, I took two semesters of Russian at Oklahoma State. My mom had taken Russian in college, and so I don't remember hardly any of it at this point. Uh, the Silic alphabet helped me with Greek because it's a very similar alphabet. But uh, um, I took this class, and Amberly was taking the class at OSU so that she could go serve as a journeyman uh, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow uh, to live out her faith. I'll never forget, I began to drift in my relationship with the Lord but I would see Amberly and I would see her devout faith. It was just another student in the classroom, but she never judged me in my walk and she was so consistent in her faith to the point that I could bring her up today. When I came back to the Lord, I remember seeing her as a mile marker for how far I had drifted from him. Are there people in your life that live sincerely and reliably in their faith? And then here's a tough question. Are you a reliable witness? Are you one of those points for people? Or are you somebody who, if you're honest, are you an individual that would say, you know what, I have not been very consistent. I have not been very faithful in my walk. If so, today's a great day to start. Let's keep moving. Look at what happens next. Luke chapter one, verses eight through 18. It says next. So once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, underlined by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I love verse 12. You look at this. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Now stop here for just a second. You gotta hear this. The last place the preacher thought he would experience God was at the worship service. How interesting is that, right? You've got this guy and he's been chosen by lot to, uh, to be the one who gets to go in and commune with God uh, and to basically light the incense in the Holy of Holies. Now here's what's powerful about that. We have a thing out here. I was trying to give us an example earlier called the Cherry Blossom Festival. You've been a part of the Cherry Blossom Festival and they choose a cherry blossom queen, I guess, based off of a wheel that they spin. Is that correct? Am I correct in that? You spin the wheel and then it's got all 50 states on there and then a person is selected via the wheel that's been spun, okay? And then that person is shocked and excited because they didn't have to get votes for themselves. They didn't have to perform. I mean, they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to lobby. It's just the wheel is spun and that's how the person's decided upon. That's what cast by lot means. Cast by lot means you didn't lobby for it. You didn't apply for it. You didn't garner votes for it. You just got it. It was just chosen by lot and you were the person. So Zechariah gets chosen by random chance to go back and he's probably giddy and excited going, woohoo, I get to be the one that goes into the Holy of Holies. And when he gets back there, there's an angel leaning on the altar going, hey, what's going on? And he's like, what? I knew I was going back to commune with God, but I didn't realize it was going to be this powerful. That's the picture that's given. Look at what happens next. It says, verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 13, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John and he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or a fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Those verses right there are to say that John has been set apart for a very special mission both in body and in spirit and they're gonna be one 
wants to be a part of it. Look at verse 16. Many of the people of Israel will hear, or will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Man, what a powerful word from the angel. Now look at Zechariah. So Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Now stop right there for just a minute. He's just been told, your wife's going to have a son, and she, and then this son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. The thing we've been waiting for since the beginning of humanity is about to take place, and you're the first person to get to hear that the timing is now. And Zechariah responds with rationality and skepticism. He goes, that's great. My wife can't have children. How can I know that this is going to happen? Now, here's what's nuts. The angel is materialized in front of him. Okay, come up here in the altar. It's Gabriel. I mean, not just an angel, but like the angel, right? That's right there spreading this good news on behalf of Almighty God. And he looks and he goes, ah, great, great to see you. I'm filled with fear. I'm terrified by seeing you. Um, How can I know that what you're saying is true? How can I know that what you're saying is real? Now, here's what's interesting. I am very appreciative. What he's done here is faithless, but I am so grateful that God has provided, through Luke, a skeptical and rational witness. If you're taking notes, write this down. Who is Luke called as his first witness? Number one, someone sincere and reliable. Number two, someone rational and a bit skeptical. Write that down. Someone rational and a bit skeptical. Some of you in this room are lawyers. Skeptical witnesses are good witnesses, aren't they? Because they're very objective in their processes. They're not emotional. I see some of you lawyers going, eh, it depends on the case. All right, okay, just go with me, all right? In this circumstance, when you're hearing about Jesus, to hear that someone received the message that was a bit skeptical from the beginning is a very, very good thing because faith requires believing without seeing. Now, here's what's interesting about our current culture. We believe that faith and rationality are against one another. But can I just tell you, you can't have one without the other. Faith and rationality are married You can't have one without the other. There is no better example I can think of of a rational, a rationality and faith working together than when you flip a light switch. You thought about this? Faith is believing without seeing. There's a whole bunch of rationality that goes into you believing without seeing that when you flip that little plastic switch, that lights are going to go on overhead of you. It's a bunch of rational stuff that goes into it. The way that the electrical current is formed, you are believing without seeing that the light bulbs work, that the the electricity has been connected properly, that the light bill has been paid so that it can turn on the electricity, that the the power plant is working properly so uh, so that the electricity can flow through. And yet, you make a snap decision. When I flip this switch, I believe without seeing that all that stuff has happened so that the light will go on. Faith and rationality working together. It's like a handshake. Alex, can I steal your hand for a second? If you are faith, good to see you, dude. If you are faith and I'm rationality, it's a handshake. Sometimes you have to believe more without seeing, and then sometimes rationality backs it up immediately. It's believing without seeing, and again, being able to back that up with truth at the same time. We forget sometimes, because the culture would like to tell you now, it's one or the other. 
Either you believe in rationality, either you believe in science, either you believe in these aspects, or either you believe in faith and things that you cannot see. We all place our faith in something. If you don't believe the light bulb example, maybe you'll believe the cup of coffee example. I gave the men's study on Tuesday this example. That cup of coffee out front, when you push the pump and the coffee comes out, you know there was a whole lot of work that went in to that coffee coming out of that pump. You weren't there when they grew the beans. You weren't there when they harvested it from the earth. You weren't there where then it was processed, pressed, and then in Young's place where he brewed it for us, and then the wonderful hospitality group that we have pulled the little wagon over there to load up the coffee in the carts, bring it over here and set it out so that you could pump and so it could come out. There's faith all over that thing. You are believing without seeing that all that stuff has happened so that when you pump it, it is something worthy of you drinking and putting in your mouth. Faith and rationality work together. And in this case, what happens with Zechariah is he stops and goes, I can't see it. I can't see it. I'm a bit skeptical that this is going to happen because of the struggle that I have on the inside. Did you ever do this back in the day? Kids today don't have to deal with this because you got chainsaws. Back in the day, when you wanted to cut down a big log, did you ever use the big two-person saw? I mean, it was cruel, you know what I mean? When you did the big two-person saw to have to try to saw that big tree down, one person working on one side, one working on the other, and sometimes the blade would get caught, rationality and faith work together, and it makes one another stronger. But if one chooses to do all the work, then that saw is never gonna move, and the tree ain't coming down. You gotta come to a point where you allow them to work together. It begs the question, where are you placing your faith? Where are you placing your faith? Have you put it in Almighty God? Or have you put it squarely in rationality to the point that you're denying the fact that you have to put your faith somewhere? You believe something without seeing. It's a powerful thing when we know what that thing is. Let's keep moving. Look at what happens in verse 19. So the angel answered, um, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Underline this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. I love verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could no longer speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but he was unable to speak. Stop there for just a minute. So Zechariah looks at him and goes, uh, how can I be sure of this? Can you give me some proof? And the angel looks at him and is like, I materialized in front of you. I defied the laws of physics to stand here in this spot in a place where no one is allowed to come, where nobody could get back here. And he looks at him and he goes, I'm Gabriel. And you know what? This was good news. And you're ruining it. <laughs> so he said, so here's what I got to do. I got to teach you faithfulness. There, by the way, because it's taken some time, you almost get the feel that the angel communes with the father and then comes back after time and goes, yeah, the Lord and I talked about this and you're gonna have to be silent for a while. What is his job? He's a preacher. For the preacher to be silent, what has happened in this passage, the lead-in for the Christmas story is that the preachers will be silent until they have the faith to back it up in their own lives. Isn't that powerful? Whoo! 
So he says, your life is now going to be a testament to this being true. People will know that something happened to you when you went back in the Holy of Holies. People will know. And you know what? When the time is right, then maybe, just maybe, you'll get your voice back, but not until you've learned to live your faith. If you're taking notes, write this down. Who has Luke called as his first witness? Number one, someone sincere and reliable. Number two, someone rational and a bit skeptical. And number three, someone supernaturally affected in front of numerous witnesses. Someone supernaturally affected in front of numerous witnesses. There are some of you in this room who are being persecuted for your faith right now, and you feel like it is happening. Lord, why is it happening in front of all these people? You ever felt that way before? Lord, I feel like it's one thing to struggle, but I feel like everybody knows my struggle that I'm going through. I feel like everybody's having to watch as they're hoping and praying that my life falls to pieces, that my life falls apart. Can I tell you some good news? Some good news is this. When the Lord allows you to struggle, and not just struggle, but to struggle in front of people, people in your family, people in your community, maybe even just people in general, the people that are watching your life unfold and your decision-making process unfold. When someone is supernaturally affected in front of numerous witnesses and the transformation process takes place, then God gets a triple portion of glory because, man, they see there is no way they could have done this on their own. There is no way that the Lord could have taken care of them, or there's no way other than the Lord that they could have been taken care of in this situation. If you're taking notes, write this down. Faithfulness in the midst of public struggle only increases the power of your message. Let me say that again. Faithfulness in the midst of public struggle only increases the power of your message. We have to be individuals that can endure hardship because if we hold on to the faith, in the end, God gets more credit and more glory because we were faithful, because we didn't give up. It says in Scripture, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Silly example, but I hope this sticks with you. So back in the day, I played lacrosse at Oklahoma State University, all right? Part of the story that I haven't told very often, okay, is I had never actually picked up a lacrosse stick until, my, until I got to college. I played football and baseball, and um, due to an event that I will not elaborate on that involved uh, the team van and a keg falling out of the side of it, uh, Oklahoma State was looking for players to play lacrosse that had never played before, all right? So because of that, they were recruiting in the, uh, in the center of the campus, and I walked by a guy who was in one of my sociology classes, and he goes, dude, you can take a hit. He said, with baseball, you got good wrist speed. And he said, you ought to come and play lacrosse with us. We just need enough guys to fill out the team. So I was like, okay, I guess I could. I guess I would give it a try. I love athletics, love to play. So I go to that first lacrosse practice. If any of you played lacrosse before, it's hard. It's really hard. And I'm telling you, I had the wrist speed. Man, I could take a hit, but it was difficult. It was, it was kind of a cross between hockey and soccer. I mean, it was just was a very, just a difficult thing to pick up. And that basket, you pick up the stick at the beginning. I'm playing catch with the guy on the first day of practice, and I can't even keep the ball in the basket. It's awful. And so I'm trying to throw, and the guy I'm playing with is like, you've never used a lacrosse stick before? And then nobody would play catch with me. It was awful. <laughs> First day of collegiate practice, and nobody even played with me. And so I'm sitting there. Our coach had played for Navy, and named Jim Hedrick. And Coach Hedrick said, son, you're going to have to work and get a little bit better before you can even really come to practice. I said, what does that mean? 
He said, first of all, he said, you have to do something called cradling with lacrosse stick. Cradling is where you, through centrifugal force, keep the ball in the, uh, uh, in the basket so that it doesn't fall out when you're running through. So he said, you're going to have to learn how to cradle. He said, stand in front of the TV, and he said, wear your gloves, you know, wear your arm pads, and he said, just cradle so that that thing, you can figure out how to keep the ball in the basket. He said, second, you need to find a brick wall. He handed me a ball, and he said, you're not good enough to play catch with a person yet. He said, you need to throw the ball at the brick wall. And so sure enough, whew, I'd go and throw that ball up against the brick wall. I wish that there was video of this from back in the day, because I had to just look like an absolute fool. I was up against one of the big engineering buildings, throwing that ball up against the, up against the wall just over and over again. No windows, okay? I was throwing it up against the wall. I practice, and I practice, and then finally, guys will play catch with me. Practice and I practice, and then finally I'm getting to play a little bit, and I'm getting to I'm getting to do I'm getting to hang out and, and just have a good time. Well, it culminates in our game against University of Tulsa. I get to come in and I scored a goal against University of Tulsa. Somewhere there is a goalie for University of Tulsa back then that is standing before a group and going, I have such great shame that some noob scored on me, all right, who had never scored a goal before. But I scored that one goal against University of Tulsa, and then the last few games, I actually got to play attackman. Those of you know across, when you're a midi that finally gets to graduate up and play attackman, you don't have to run as much, and so that was, that was a big deal. All this is to say, we get to the banquet, and they do the awards. At the awards ceremony that first year, they did the MVP award, they did Offensive Player of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, and then Most Improved Player. The players voted on it. And Jim Hedrick looks at me and he goes, I can't believe it, but Randall's Most Improved Player goes to you. There was no one more shocked than me. At that point, my jaw hits the ground, and he says, congratulations, your most improved player. And then he says, because if we're being honest, you couldn't have gotten much worse. It was just the way it goes. <laughs> now listen, transformation. Voted on by my peers, there was a whole lot of hard work that went into that moment. We got to come to a point where we are okay with the Lord working in our life through a transformation process and not just a lightning bolt moment where we become great in an instant. When did we become so obsessed with instant gratification that we miss the fact that when God builds a story in us, when he crafts a journey in us, it's so much more powerful because then it's not just us going, whoa, look at what God did for me. There's a wake of people behind us going, whoa, look at what God did for him. Whoa, look at what God did for her. Whoa, look at the way God's gotten glory from honestly somebody who never should have held a lacrosse stick, right? Look at the way God has used you powerfully in someone who didn't have a spiritual bone in their body before you met Jesus Christ. Someone who had not experienced victory from God Almighty like this before. It begs the question, are you faithful in hard stretches? Are you faithful in hard stretches? Or do you only celebrate when you get instant gratification? Now we got our last set of verses and we'll close today. Look at what it says next in Luke 1, verses 23 through 25. It says, when his time of service was complete, he returned home. Look at verse 24. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. Underline and highlight for five months, she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. And in these days... He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Stop here for just a minute. 
If you're taking notes, who has Luke called as his first witness? Number one, someone sincere and reliable. Number two, someone rational and a bit skeptical. Number three, someone supernaturally affected in front of numerous witnesses. And number four, someone who had seen God's promise fulfilled. What I love about this passage, there are some of you who have friends, relatives, or you yourself who have struggled to get pregnant. Elizabeth gets this word from her husband, but she remains in seclusion for how long? For five months. She would have known well before that what was taking place inside her body. But even Elizabeth is struggling to believe this wonderful, wonderful good news. So much so that she goes into seclusion. It's almost like she wants to believe it so badly, but she's afraid to put herself out there because maybe she'd been through miscarriage before in the past. So she waits and she waits. And then all of a sudden she says, this is for real. My husband didn't just go nuts. This is for real. You see, you become a very powerful individual, a powerful story when you have experienced Christ in your own life. The miraculous supernatural power of God seen through to a moment of completion. It's a beautiful place to be. If you're taking notes, it begs this question. Does your life testify to the existence of Jesus? Does your life testify to the existence of Jesus? When people look at you, are you a witness that God could call to stand up on his behalf? Before Jesus is even introduced, Luke says, there's a pretty cool story right on the front end of this that needs to be told before we tell you about the birth of the Savior. God was working in the hearts and lives of his people right up until the moment when Christ was born. I love you guys. Let's find a way to be witnesses. Thank you, Eddie. Find a way to be a witness. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time, but there is something powerful about stopping to process the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, if you're here today and you'd say, Zach, I need you to pray for me. If I really think about it, I, I want to be a reliable witness. I want to be someone who's sincere and reliable that honestly is like those bumpers that you talked about. That I would be someone that as people drift away, they would see me as a faithful, consistent. And guys, I wish I could tell you that I've always been true to that. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would be sincere and reliable in my walk with God. If that's you, if you just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down, so many of you, maybe half the room. Thank you. I'm gonna pray for you, but this one's really between you and God. I wanna encourage you, just say this simple prayer. God, help me to be the real deal. God, help me to be the real deal. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? It's time I place my faith in Jesus. It's time that I chose to believe in without seeing that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that he alone is that perfect sacrifice for all my sin. Remember, just like we talked about, like flipping a light switch, your faith is going somewhere. You believe without seeing all the time.
But you'd say today, my faith needs to go into Jesus. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. It's powerful. That's powerful. That's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. If you are believing that for the very first time, TJ is standing at the back in a really ugly Christmas sweater, bright green. If that's you, when we stand in just a minute, sneak back there, tap him on the shoulder. He'd love to introduce you to Jesus. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to be faithful through a hard stretch. I'm going through a supernatural struggle in front of a whole lot of people. And honestly, this is between me and God. I need to make the right decisions today and trust that God is the one crafting my journey. Let me say that again. I need to make the right decisions today and trust that God is crafting my journey into the future. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would be faithful through a hard stretch. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. That is powerful. That is powerful. Y'all can put your hands down, so many of you. In this city, it's tough, isn't it? Stay true. Make the right decision today, and the Lord will craft the journey for tomorrow. That's all you're called to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. And Lord, thank you that Luke called Zechariah as the first witness. It very easily, this story could have fell by the wayside because the story of Jesus is, is the focus of, of everything. But I thank you that Luke called Zechariah as the first witness. Lord, I pray that we would also be considered as sincere and reliable. And Lord, for those crying out to you today, help them to be the real deal. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today that need to place their faith in you, some for the very first time, that you would give them the courage to stand up to talk to TJ and finalize that decision today. Lord, our faith in you is what affects eternity. And Lord, I thank you for those who are enduring difficult stretches right now. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you would give them a double portion of courage. And Lord, I pray that in the land of the living, they would be able to see victory, that they would be able to see you glorious, victorious, and that they might be able to see even this side of heaven, that they might be able to see what it is that you are building in and through their lives. I love you, Lord, and I love our people. Bless us, and Lord, I pray that we would be focused on you this season. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.